So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And in just a moment, we're going to read some verses from chapter 8, page 810 in the church Bibles. If you're new to Escohasset, we started back in September, October of 2014, and we've been working uh, systematically through 1 Corinthians, and we took a break during Christmas and Easter as well. So if you're wondering why we're in this particular text this morning, that's the reason why we're we're, where we're supposed to be. So I'm going to read these three verses when we're through this morning. If you have a question about what we have said or sung or, or talked about or especially about Jesus, then I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. If you look at that little text note in the NIV, you'll look to the bottom and you'll notice that it's in quotes. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. Okay, let's bow and pray together. Father, We thank you that we were given the privilege to sing to you, and now it's our time to learn from you. And we thank you that your humble love, which stooped to save us from our sad and sinful state, is a love which rescues sinners from the hell that we deserved. It is a love which shows us how your one and only Son forfeited every one of his rights without ceasing to be God so that we might be saved. And so that we might never question your love for us at all. But admittedly, Father, sometimes we do. And for that, we are deeply sorry. Please then, bring down your mighty power. Help us to keep these unchanging truths in our minds, framing our lives without any delay, especially if these things are new to some of us. And so we need everything, and we know that you know we do. And so we're asking this all, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, surely one of the great challenges in the church of Jesus Christ is living in a free society where personal freedom and personal rights can be celebrated and elevated at the expense of almost everything and everyone else, specifically in the church. And while the freedom for the pursuit of happiness is certainly a constitutional right, it is not, by necessity, a biblical principle. It really does not serve the church of Jesus Christ very well at all. Because for the next three chapters, Paul will be giving decisive and clear principles on Christian freedom and its use. And he's going to make this all very plain. So, for example, chapter 10, verse 24, nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. Chapter 8, verse 9, if your Bible's open, make sure the use of your freedom doesn't become a stumbling block for the weak. Chapter 9, verse 12, we do not use this right. Chapter 10, verse 31, so whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Verse 33, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of the many. And then chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Did you hear all those verses? Uh, The good of others, the glory of God, not seeking my own good, not seeking my own rights. 
And even though some of what God is saying through his servant Paul might sound un-American, it is clearly, clearly Christian. Now, the title of our talk this morning is Christian Freedom. The subtitle is The Life of the Mind and the Sin of Self-Importance. And I gave that title to these verses because true Christian freedom, unlike all the other various freedom and liberation movements of the secular or political world, is not a matter of demanding nor using the rights that we have. I mean, just surely in the course of the last week and a half or so in the events in Baltimore and San Diego and New York and so on, no matter what side of the equation you tend to lean on, it is the rights that people are demanding that somehow or another can get in the way. Again, true Christian freedom and loved ones, this is basic Christianity. This is why Christianity is not a social movement. This is why Christianity is definitely not a political movement. True Christian freedom is not a matter of demanding nor using the rights that we have. And we need only to look to Jesus Christ, our Savior, King, and Friend, to discover this be true. Because Jesus, as God, as he steps onto the stage of human history, he had every right to not become human, to not be born under the law, to not be reduced to a single cell in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus had every right as God not to have to be taught his numbers and his colors and his letters as he was as a child. He had every right not to know hunger and thirst and be bruised and battered and lied on and spat upon and punched out and hung on a cross. He had every right not to bear our sin. And then submitting to sin's uh, double-fisted, if you would, penalty of separation from God and bearing the wrath of God. He had every right to to not have to submit to these things, but he volunteered himself. He forfeited himself and his rights, which provided the only way possible. Now listen, the only way possible for sinful humanity's justification and a right standing before a holy God. If he doesn't do that, we're sunk. And there's really no reason for us to be here this morning. You see, loved ones, Jesus by rights as God, cast aside every right that he had so that we who are sinful, we who are so quickly cling to the rights that we think we have a right to, could be rescued from our selfish sins and certainly our sin of self-importance. And therefore, and again, listen carefully, until the Christian realizes that before God, he or she possesses no rights by nature, until we realize that in our sinfulness we have forfeited all those rights, then and only then will we recognize that we do not deserve the rights that we are given, but are given in Christ. And then and only then can we exercise those rights in Christ, won by Christ, in such a way that pleases Christ, and then finally reveals a genuine concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, we have got to believe. We have got to believe, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, that we are not our own, that we were bought at a price, therefore honor God. Honor God with our bodies, yes, but honor God now as a servant of Christ. And that's got to mean something. Do you see how dangerous a place like this can be? You can come in and do what you do and leave and never have to worry about what I just spent the last few minutes talking about. It's reality. 
So, so many of you have probably asked the question, what am I for free to do as a Christian? That's a wonderful question. If you've asked that, you are to be commended for it. But have you ever asked, have we ever asked these questions? How does the use of my Christian freedom affect the other Christians in Christ's church? Or have you ever asked this, how is my Christian freedom to be limited by other Christians in Christ's church? So I need to ask you, have you ever decided life with your brothers and your sisters in Christ and Christ in mind? Just like Jesus did. Now, as we begin this morning, it's certainly important that we understand in these opening verses, Paul is not celebrating ignorance. The, the life of the mind, it, it, it has to, to matter to the Christian. So Paul's not celebrating ignorance. He, he's just exposing unhealthy self-importance. Therefore, he's not using his knowledge versus love argument so that uh, stupid love is better than growing knowledge. So that people that are smart, they must be unloving and they ought not to be trusted. But loving people, they're okay because, you know, they're just so darn sweet. It's not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying is that in our knowledge of God, if it's not soaked in Calvary love, then it becomes dangerous, it becomes useless, and it becomes a puffy thing, which actually can harm others. So let's just go through this. Um, doing the best that I can within the framework of these three verses. We have three headings we're going to work under. Um, if you have a worship folder, you'll see it there. The first of which is a question. The second is a digression. And then finally, one application. It's not the only application we can make, but I, I think it's the best of the ones that we can make, at least for now. So, so first of all, then, a question. Verse 1. Do you see it there if your Bible's open? Now about food sacrificed to idols. Well, in the context that Paul is writing into, sacrificing to the gods with a small g was at the very heart of both private and public life. If you or I were living as followers of Christ in first century Corinth, seeking to obey Jesus Christ, we predictably would have had non-Christian friends, right? Jesus said that we're to go and tell, so we, we would have gone and told. And then we more than likely would have been invited to the home of non-Christians, more than likely, there would have been a meal to share, and maybe even if it wasn't just a general meal, maybe it was a wedding or something like that. And in that context, there was highly likely that some of the food that you would be eating would be sacrificed to idols. And part of the meal, namely the, the meat part of the meal, not only, but, but, but mainly, part of that meal would have been burned. Now, that might be not new to some of us, but that would part of the process there. It was burned as a token sacrifice to the gods. So whenever the family took the food which was to be eaten, about a third of it was burnt. Another third, namely the left side of the beast, was set aside for the priest. And once the priest had their part, then whatever was left over was to be eaten at the dinner or the wedding or whatever it was. And that afforded the occasion where there was more than likely Christian friends to be there and eat. So the question that the Christian had was a very sensible question. If this food was sacrificed to idols, should I or should I not eat it as a Christian? And so that situation was so common that it was impossible to avoid. Now that was on the personal level. But on the public level, the state was operating in much the same way. So again, the beast would have been burnt as a token sacrifice to the God. 
the priests then would receive their share, the local leaders their share, and whatever was left over would be sold to the local shops and markets. And so beyond the fact that the priests had quite a little operation going on, if you think about that, they were well fed at the very least, when one would go to the market to buy some meat, the Christian would look at the product and they would have to ask themselves the question, okay, I wonder if this food was sacrificed to idols. And in the overwhelming number of cases, the inevitable answer would have been, yes, it was. And so again, the question would have been, should I buy it as a Christian? Should I buy it and eat it or should I not buy it and eat it? But that wasn't all. Added to that was the notion that demons were everywhere. And these de- demons were able to, to inhabit the lives of men and women. And it was a taught that one of the best and favorite ways for demons to inhabit a life was to, believe it or not, hide in the food. So, what a misery it was to eat in the first century, right? So you had, I wonder if this food was sacrificed to idol question. And then they had the added question, I wonder if there were any demons hiding in this meat that I'm about ready to eat. Now, before we laugh all that and say, boy, they weren't very smart, let us be humble enough to know that our culture has these types of little madnesses and we're just too blind to see it. And maybe four or five hundred years from now, if Jesus should tarry, that that generation will be saying, what in the world were we thinking when we did what we did? Unless, of course, we think that we have got everything down perfectly just right now. And again, surely the events in the past week, week and a half would make us hopefully know better. But anyway, the people who were offering the sacrifices to the gods, they had two primary objectives. Number one, in offering up the sacrifice to the God, they were trying to secure the favor of that God. That's why what they did was so important. They were trying to earn God's favor. And of course, that is not Christianity. And what a horrible way that is to live. Performance-based circus tricks for God so that we can earn his love. What a horrible way to live. Tim Keller tweeted this this week. Religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. It is beautiful what he said, isn't it? So they sacrifice food to the God to try to get favor and love and so on. The second thing, as you would expect, they sacrificed food to the gods to decontaminate their food. Uh, that demon was somewhere in the food and only the god could get it out. And so they did what they did so that the demon would be gone. So that was their context. And of course, the concern, since it was virtually impossible to eat meat without it being offered up to idols, the concern was, what should we as Christians do with food sacrificed to idols? Okay, should we go to the pagan party or not? Should we eat at that house or not? Should we buy the meat at that shop or not? How free are we to do this? And that was the question. But before we go on to the second point, let's agree while that specific question is not really in our concern, there are issues in our day which relate to Christian freedom that are dressed up differently but they inevitably lead to the same question. Should I or should I not do this? And so under God, they might be lawful to do, but they are not under God profitable to do. And they may cause our brothers and sisters to, look at your Bible, verse 13, they might cause our brothers and sisters to fall. And thus, verse 12, we sin against Christ himself. 
So, so now it's on, right? The misuse of Christian freedom is not a harmless mistake, but it's actually a sin against Jesus Christ. The improper use of our Christian freedom amounts to a sin against Jesus himself. So, loved ones, let me ask you this question. Do you want, let me ask it like this, how, how close do you want to be with your fellow believers? Do you want to be so close where our lives are so tied together that our decisions and our use of our freedoms could by and large tremendously affect to the positive or to the negative our brothers and sisters in Christ whom Christ died for? Do you want that? Well, loved ones in Christ, we have that. And we cannot escape that. We can live in fairy world and pretend that's not true. But it is true. And because of that, a chapter like this and those which will follow will will all of a sudden become tremendously important. And you see, this is one of the dangers of living in a free society. And can you believe I just said that? This is one of the dangers of living in a free society. We are so free out there. Surely we have to be that free, if you would, in here. So we try and live in here like out there. And that won't work. That will not work. So we may ignore all this stuff, but we cannot escape this stuff. And if it's true that our society is a society that is increasingly becoming polarized and privatized, then let me ask you this. How in the dickens can the honor of Christ's name, how can the gospel expand all central, undeniable Christian truths and concerns How can these things happen if we are so concerned, if we're so preoccupied with our Christian freedoms at the expense of our Christian duties? How? Maybe you'll understand it like this. It might not help. It might help. If you asked a pastor, what would be tougher to preach and serve in inner city or in a community like this? You know what I would tell you after 18 or 19 years now almost of pastoral ministry? It's a community like this. Definitely a community like this. I might die quicker in a community like I just said. And that would be fine. And that's the idea of Christian freedom. Jesus is first. And yes, we are our brothers and sisters keeper. And yes, we are accountable in some degree to their spiritual well-being. And that was one of the things that turned, if you would, the pagan world upside down. When the pagan would come and worship, it was all about them. Every sacrifice they made, everything they did, it was all them. I'm going to get some love between me and God. I'm going to get some help and favor between me and God. And they saw the Christians lose that preoccupation with the self. And they saw Christians lay down their lives for the good of others and rearrange their lives for the glory of Christ. And it made a lasting effect. That's why we're not a club. That's why we're a body. A family. Second point then. Digression. You'll see that there in verse 1b and through 3. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So he addresses the question in 1a. He won't begin to answer it specifically until verse 4. So what he does is he gives a digression. But it's, you know, it's a purposeful digression. Right now he's laying the foundation or a line of thought which can 
address by way of principle every question a Christian might have on their Christian freedom. So as you look at the text there, as we said before, Paul is not demoting the place of knowledge in the Christian life. That's one of the burdens of living now, that people don't know their Bibles very well. So Paul stresses knowledge in almost every letter that he writes into. He, Romans uh, 15, Colossians 1, 9, 2 Corinthians 6, Romans 1, Romans 11, and Ephesians 3, and many other places. Because Paul understood that Christian love, void of biblical knowledge, is nothing more than a kind of sugary, gooey, sentimental mess. It runs on impression and feeling alone. And Christian love that is like that, not in knowledge, could be nothing more than kind of an informally agreed on give and take so that both parties can feel okay in their sins. So if I ask you to define from the scriptures love, many of you would know the work of Christ on the cross, right? 1 John 4 and 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a Tony sacrifice for our sin. And that would be good. But would you also say the law of God is God's love? Romans 14 would. Because by the law we recognize our sin. Thank God he loved us so that we'll know. By the law we recognize our need for a savior. And by it we understand the path of love and devotion to both God and others. So that's love. How are we going to know how to love God? We won't know on our own. Uh, Commandments 1 through 4 help us to know how to love God. Well, how are we going to love each other? Well, Commandments 5 through 10 will help us to know how we should love each other. And so Paul understood this, but he also understood, and this is the point here, Knowledge without love can, can very quickly turn into some kind of pharisaical arrogance. Because knowledge without love is, is also another form of ignorance. Knowledge without love can simply be a vehicle to let everyone know how smart we are. In other words, pride. So when I was giving you commandments 1 through 4 and commandments 5 through 10, I could have been, I wasn't, but I could have been saying in my mind, I bet you half these people don't know what those commandments are. even though you set up my instruction now for almost seven years. So then it would appear in the text there's two views that are running in the church on food sacrificed to idols. Both groups think they're in the know. One group says, of course you can eat that food and we know why. The other group says, you cannot eat that food and you should know why. So on the basis of, of the various degrees of knowledge, without any love, they had gotten to the place of difficulty in the church. So in Paul's digression, he begins to lay down this necessary foundation. Verse 1b, do you see it there? We know that we all possess knowledge. Now that could have been a quote from Paul. It could have been a quote from one of the groups. Whatever it was, what they were saying was, we have knowledge that makes it so we know that we are doing the right thing. But then Paul adds to that, let me tell you this. Knowledge on its own puffs up. It inflates. It is basically just hot air. It makes arrogance. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And it's clear that Paul thinks this church puffed up. He will say later on in chapter 13, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, Paul says, I am worthless. I'm nothing. So J.B. Phillips' fair paraphrases verse 1b chapter 8 as follows. We should remember that while knowledge may make a man look big, it is only love 
that can make him grow to his full stature. So, okay, yeah, knowledge can make us look big. However, listen carefully, love makes you grow up so you can act small. In other words, in the context of Christian freedom, love would make us diminish ourselves from the equation in a right and sensible way so that others may be built up, right? Knowledge on its own is hot air. It needs lots of space. Love in full stature makes us small, and it builds others up. Isn't that Jesus, right? Jesus uh, transcends the universe, big, but he makes himself small, human, so that we can be saved. Paul then goes on in the second verse to point out the limits of knowledge. Verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. In other words, God is one of those subjects that if you think you know it all, you simply show that you don't. And God does not reveal himself to the puffed up, but to the humble. Someone once said, ignorance does not know that it does not know. True knowledge knows Excuse me, true knowledge does not know and knows that it does not know. Okay? Ignorance does not know that it does not know. And so that's the person who's always sounding off. Oh, I can answer that. But half the time, he's so ignorant and people are so gracious, they just let him go on. Ignorance does not know that it does not know. True knowledge does not know and knows that it does not know. Bright people then know they don't know at all. It's dumb people who are the ones who think they know it all. Smart people are smart enough to know they don't know. Dumb people are so dumb, they don't know that they don't know. And so dumb people have something to say about everything. Listen to this quote. Knowledge is the passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state. State of ignorance. It's good, right? Knowledge is the passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to to the conscious state of ignorance. Now remember, Paul is talking about the nature of Christian freedom. And and this was threatening then to have a radical effect on the people's lives and the people's home and certainly the church of Jesus Christ. And it was the know-it-alls that had the potential to be the most decisive. We know. So we're going to let you know that we know. So the contrast then is not between knowledge and ignorance. Because ignorance can be a huge handicap. Uh, So many Christians are misinformed and led astray because of their ignorance. And the most dangerous thing about ignorance can be that we think that we know it all. So again, the contrast is not between knowledge and ignorance, but the contrast is between knowledge and love. So the Corinthians would think the man who knows God is loved by God. In other words, the one who gets it right, that's the one that God really loves. The one who gets it right is loved by God. And surely that's how we can sound sometimes, right? We know better. We know better than all of them out there and some of them in here. And so we're right. And we're well loved. But Paul says, no, look at verse 3. The person who loves God, which would include a love for others, uh, 1 John 4.20, the person who loves God is known by God. In other words, it is love that has the most permanent effect, right? It's love 
that has the most permanent effect. Knowledge on its own, hot air. Comes and goes. Love in knowledge builds up. So the real knowledge of God is a knowledge which produces love in life and a knowledge that is underpinned by the fact that God knows me. And so what Paul is doing, believe it or not, is he's just laying down a basic foundational truth throughout the whole of the New Testament. Namely, the most important thing is not that we know all the right stuff about God, but that God knows us. Because even if we could know all that we know for all our lives, that's no great mystery. The great mystery is that God knows us. I mean, this is Psalm 8. Is it Psalm 8? Uh, What is man that you are mindful of him? See, that's the great mystery that God knows us. For the Christian to know that we were chosen by God, to know that we were adopted by God and his family, to know that we were set apart by God, uh, to know that we are the object of God's affection and concern and care, to know that God can pick us out of a crowd and call us by name, that is love's reward. Knowledge then, that is really knowledge, does not produce mere intellectuals. But the knowledge that is real knowledge produces itself in love. It's found on the fact that the Lord knows those that are his, 2 Timothy 2.19. The knowledge then that is true is knowledge that is united to God and soaked by Calvary love. Now listen carefully, which is why... Christian love knows to set itself aside. Just like Jesus. Christian love knows to set itself aside. Jesus in his earthly ministry, he set himself aside. Not at the expense of knowledge, but because of his knowledge. Jesus knew the Father's plan was the only way to save sinners. He knew that. So he loved the Father... And the Father loved the world, and Jesus set himself aside. And loved ones, listen carefully. If Christ has not set himself aside, we're done. We're done. There's no hope of heaven, salvation, adoption, and so on. Therefore, the Christian, Christian love, is not interested in self-importance but interested in love because love builds up. And and I cannot tell you this enough. Christian love sets itself aside, not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of knowledge, but because of truth, because of knowledge. So do you remember those three questions I asked you at the beginning? Have you ever asked yourself these questions? What am I free to do as a Christian? How does the use of my Christian freedom affect the other Christians in Christ's church? How is my Christian freedom to be limited? Right? That almost sounds un-American. Are you ready to limit me? Yeah. How is my Christian freedom to be limited by other Christians in Christ's church? So do you see how our knowledge of God and our love for God, which means love for his people, would make us ask those three questions and change our old answers If we needed to. Especially in secondary matters. That ultimately don't really matter. That's why a Christian should be very careful. When he goes to the Christian bookstore. And sees titles of Christian books. That will have a whole lot of you in them. Because that can be a dangerous thing. 
Our conduct then in relation to Christian freedom is, is not based solely on knowledge, but a gentle, sympathetic, considerate love in knowledge for others, which is directly related to being known by God. You see, because God knows me, I love God, and I can reduce myself in my loving God for the glory of God and for the good of others. And loved ones, if you're still listening, that is tough. That is tough, especially for those who think we know it all, especially for those who think we deserve it all, especially for those of us who think that we know more than other people know because knowledge is power. Uh, Knowledge can turn heads, can it? Knowledge is influence. Knowledge can make available the basis for intimidation, even in Christ's church. Knowledge can intimidate people in a way of life that they don't even believe in. Knowledge can intimidate people to do what we want, but love won't do that. Love will not do that. And that is why the struggle, again, is not between knowledge and ignorance. Please. Too often times that ignorance is is celebrated in the church. It can never be celebrated in the church. It's not between knowledge and ignorance. But knowledge and love. John the Apostle sums it up in 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. Verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sisters is a liar. Whoever does not love their brothers and sisters whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. And anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Uh, We love God by obeying his commands. Love then. Calvary love is the key to our behavior, is the key to our knowledge. Love then sets the limits of our liberty. Love sets the limits of our liberty because Paul says knowledge flat out will puff up, but love, Christian love, in knowledge, if you would, builds others up. You see, the life of the mind and the sin of self importance. And again, we can just go back to the events of this week. We could just Stay alert to life in the political realm. Where everyone's telling us about our rights and have our rights and we need our rights back and we have our rights and we have our rights and then you have the best whoever was. Jesus Christ. And he loses every one of his rights without ceasing to be God so that we could be saved. Question, digression, then finally an application. And again, I'm sure there are many applications But I decided on this one, and it's this. It's only when we are genuinely looking out for the interest of others, not simply our own, only when we are genuinely looking out for the interest of others that we can honestly came to be on the road of the kind of maturity that Paul's speaking of here. You see, it takes no spiritual power to look after your own personal interest, right? You do not need to be a Christian to look after your own personal interest. You just need to be human. But only the Christian can reduce themselves in knowledge and look to the interests of their brothers and sisters and their Savior Jesus Christ and even the world and be okay, be okay with losing their their rights for the glory of Christ and the good of the world. So we must ask ourselves, in in my decisions on Christian freedom, when, it, when it's not main and plain in the Bible, right? Decisions that are not specifically forbidden in the Bible. Ask yourself this question. When we decide 
When I decide what I decide in my life, everything, yes, everything, are people brought closer to God? Are Christians strengthened in their faith because of what I decide? Does this build the body of Jesus Christ because of what I decide? Are people glad that they have met us and they know us because of what we decide? In my use of Christian freedom, is it really all about me? Because when a Christian, when a Christian's knowledge is radiated and released by Calvary love, they are clearly, clearly demonstrated that they love God and that God knows them. So verse 9, look at your Bible. Be careful in the exercise of your freedom. Well, why? Well, because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And since Jesus Christ is very interested in building up his kingdom, the church, this must be very important to those of us who name his name. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together as we prepare for the receiving of communion. If those who will be coming to serve, if you would come forward now as I pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for Romans, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. We thank you that it is true that none of us are an island entire of ourselves, that we are part of the whole. We are a body. The decisions that we make right now They matter in light of everything and especially in the life of this church. We pray for the grace because it's going to take grace for us to truly understand this and to live in the light of its truth and find the freedom that we so desperately desire. In Christ's name we say these things. Amen.